afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Taya Obrett, the author of The Tiger's Wife and the recently published novel Inland. Taya is here in Winston-Salem for this year's Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors. Taya, welcome to Winston-Salem and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. I'd love to start out to talk about you a little bit before we talk about the book. You came to the United States as a child. Can you tell us a little bit about why you came here and what your immigrant experience in the United States has been like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I um, I was born in the former Yugoslavia um, back when it was Yugoslavia. Yeah. I was born in Belgrade, um, but I'm of uh, Slovene and Bosnian stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the war started, um, things got very bad very quickly, particularly for people of, of um, Bosnian descent, but, but, but also um, people of, of, of mixed uh, uh, descent were, were uh, forced to make choices that um, weren't, uh, you know, weren't amenable to, weren't consistent with living. Um, yeah. and, um, and so we left, um, and I grew up in Cyprus, and Egypt. I was raised by my mother and my grandparents. Um, and we ended up in uh, Georgia, in a suburb of Atlanta called Lawrenceville, mm-hmm. um, which had a quite large Bosnian community and where all my, my cousins uh, and uh, uncles and aunts had, had, had ended up yeah. as well. Um, and they had come there from Sarajevo and from Mostar, mostly. And uh, yeah, my, my immigrant experience was... Uh, <laughs> was a trial by fire, as, as, as most are, but, but I also felt very welcome and, and, and very embraced, which, uh, which, yeah. And so what was it like? As, so how old were you when you came to 12, Atlanta? 12 so years 12. old. Yeah. What was it like to make that kind of transition from you know, living in Europe to living in the United States? Well, I had been living in, in, in Cairo directly before that. Okay, so, yeah. so, um, it was, it was, I mean, it was, a, it was total culture shock. Yeah. Um, I went to a school that had 65 students and I, I came to a school that had, you know, like a thousand. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think that one of, um, one of the things that is different about moving to this was one of the things that was different about moving to the states was that it, it had a feel of permanence, mm-hmm. and so you're trying to attach to the culture in a really really particular way and finding that you can't. And coming over at twelve, I was at the particular age when like cultural references are important. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, being able to talk about the same thing, so you assimilate really really quickly in this in this very very superficial way. I was lucky in in many respects. You know, I I. I I had a leg up because I was white and English speaking by that point already. I spoke the Queen's English. I had a little British accent at yeah. the time. Um, but um, so, so the superficial aspects of, of assimilation happened quite quickly for me. Um, however, uh, as I've gotten older, those deeper anchors have have uh, it's become clear that the anchors don't quite go deep enough there are still yeah. things about about american culture from which i feel you know an outsider yeah. um which i think is a, a quite common experience particularly as immigrants grow older yeah, yeah. 
So your first novel, um, The Tiger's Wife, was a big success. Did, did you find that having a successful novel under your belt made it, did it make it harder or easier to attack that second novel? I mean, I think it, in some ways it did both mm -hmm. um, because... On the one hand, there was the belief that if a second novel were to be written, um, it would hopefully get placed. You know, it, 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 the, the, the fear of non-publication that comes with your first novel is a little bit leavened by, uh, or, or a little bit lessened actually, by the by the the, the very existence of your first yeah, novel, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but in other ways, um, the transition from being unpublished to being a published author was something that that I really struggled with, um, mm -hmm. because before publication, you you know, you write a tremendous amount and you throw away a tremendous amount. You have this idea that you're, yep. you know, you're yeah. practicing and everything is practice and it's all right for things to go no place and it's all right for things to just be experimental. Um, but after I, I published, I found myself really, really agitated by the fact that I didn't want to show everything that I was producing. Mm -hmm. So I ended up mm -hmm. writing like 1,400 pages of of two book, well, two and a half books, Gosh. Um, and, and just putting, putting them away and putting them away and putting them away um, until, I, until I got to Inland, which was a really dispiriting process um, at first. And then as, as the years went on and went on and went on, uh, it became clear to me that that was just part of my process. And, uh, yeah. and, and it, would, it had remained part of my process even after my initial publication. Yeah. So how long was it between the two novels? Eight, eight years. Yeah. I mean, I think it is a funny thing, that, as you say, that you know, your first novel, you might take, it might take you 20 years. Yeah. And then suddenly they're like, okay, we'd like another one in 18 months. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. It, does, it does kind of um, challenge your process. I think that's great that you're able to sort of and stick I was, to what works for you. I, I felt very lucky, too, to, to be allowed to do that. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I, I, I felt quite supportive of my publisher in, in, in that regard. Um, but um, I, I think, too, that, that, that it's something that writers tend to delude themselves about. You know, people people ask you all the time, like, how long did your first book take? And the answer is like, oh, well, I started writing it, you know, three years ago. But the real answer is, yeah. it was my whole my life. My whole life, yeah. 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 I have, we have a, a friend in England who, when my first novel came out, she described me as the man who took 20 years to become an overnight success. Nice. You know? But I think that's true almost for, of, of most authors. And we were talking about this yesterday, too, about, you know, that it it's not just from the time that you put pen to paper, it, it, it goes back much earlier than that. So tell us, tell us about Inland. What's the, what's the basic setup of, of your new novel? Inland is set in the American Southwest um, at the turn of the century, well, uh, in, the, in the mid uh, 1800s through the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. uh, it follows two narrative threads. Uh, one of our narrators is Lurie. He's an immigrant from the Ottoman Empire uh, who is brought over to the to New York, actually, um, by his father when uh, a very small child. And um, he grows up under very rough circumstances. He's a gravedigger for a while, um, and he ends up an outlaw and running from a dogged marshal uh, and straight into... A gathering of people, also from the Ottoman Empire, who have come here uh, with a shipment of camels um, 
for the for the U, for the United States military, right. uh, yeah. which is which is actually a true thing. That it's happens. a true thing. I remember the movie back in the seventies. You so you've seen the movie. People I, either know nothing about I it. I actually or they, saw. Yeah. I actually saw. What is it called? Homps. Homps. Yeah. 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 Um. <laughs> Um, so that's one narrative thread, and the other follows a, a frontier was woman um, named Nora Lark, uh, who is, uh, and it follows her through a single day uh, on her ranch in Arizona territory in 1893, um, and a whole lot of things go wrong. She's waiting for her husband to come back with water. There's a terrible drought. There's an enterprising cattle baron. Um, so all the all the stuff you've seen in westerns. But. One of the things I found interesting about Lurie is that I think, um, you know, if you ask most Americans, tell us about the kind of immigrants that were coming to America in the second half of the nineteenth century. You know, they might say German, they might say Irish, they might say Italian, they might say Chinese. They probably wouldn't say Ottoman Empire. I mean, most of us don't even quite have a handle on exactly where that is. Sure. And so I thought that was fascinating that that you sort of gave us some some insight into an immigrant community that that most readers are probably less familiar with. Yeah, and it was it felt like a real gift to sort of discover that in the in the true history. When I when I first um, I actually heard about about this story from a podcast. Um, so. It, it, your life can change from podcast. There you go, <laughs> um, and um, and it, it it framed the whole narrative in 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 uh, as you know this ghost story from the nineteen uh, from the early nineteen hundreds about two homesteading women who are beset on their ranch by a creature of unknown provenance. Yep. Maybe it's a horse. Maybe it's not. Um, and then it, it tied back the appearance of this creature, which was called the Red Ghost throughout Arizona for many, many years um, to the existence of the Camel Corps. And one of the things I found fascinating after the story grabbed me was this notion of, of these young men who had come over um, from Turkey, from Greece, uh, from, from various parts of, of uh, the Middle East, um, and who made lives here and, yeah. and, and you know, um, started communities, and they're completely unknown to us. Yeah. And they were unknown to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think that the myth of the American West and the, and, and the myth of Western settlement in particular um, is so much about the kinds of immigrants that, that we recognize, you know, yeah. German, Irish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, was, I was fascinated to learn it and to get to sort of... Uh, dwell in it a little bit. I think to, to me that's one of the great excitements about writing historical fiction is when you find that the truth, the history is even better than what you were imagining that you might write down in your book and you you, know, you discover something like the Camel Corps or the, or the Ottomans. You, you begin um, inland, you begin with Lurie's story, is that yeah. right? And, and, it's, and it's in the first person. At the it beginning, is. And, yeah. and a very powerful voice that, that he has. Do you find, and you know, I would ask this, whether you're actually writing a draft of a novel or just writing character sketches or just writing, do you, do you find that the writing in the first person is, allows you to sort of access that character voice more easily? No, I don't. Um, I, I have a really, really difficult time with first person, and I resist it as much as I can, mm -hmm. which, is, which is odd because both of my novels ended up having huge pieces of, of first person in them. Um, I, have a, I have a theory that comfort with the first person, first person is performative, right? Um, because yeah. you are uh, putting down a self-addressing voice that nevertheless has to relay information that the character already knows, so why would they be saying it? Right. Um, I, have a, I have a theory that, that um, people who address themselves in the first person 
are more comfortable with first person and the people who address themselves mm. in the second person will often substitute the second person as a kind of closer first. Yeah. I talk to myself in the second person all the time and I, uh, I would write I would rather write in the second person any day of the week and twice on Sunday, but but I can't. It's a it's a it's a it's a weird form, and, and people resist it because they prefer to talk to themselves in the first person. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, um, it's I, I have I, I struggle with it a lot, and with Luria, I had to write the whole story and then recast it in 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 this particular context because he's addressing someone he's addressing his camel burke throughout right. the the um his this long monologue about their lives um and uh it took me a while to figure out that that was the point where he was speaking from but you do in the first and last sentence of that chapter you do use the second person mm-hmm. and you don't tell us at that point who who the you being addressed is do you do you like doing that as a way of sort of pulling the reader directly into the text? I, I do, and I also, I, I really, one of the things I wanted to replicate was this sense of, there were so many layers of mystery to this, oh God, now I'm going to rhyme, there were so many layers of mystery to this history, you know, um, and uh, I wanted to replicate as much as possible the feeling of surprise I felt learning about the Red Ghost and learning about the Camel Corps yeah. and all this yeah. stuff. Um, and so it became necessary, I, I think, um, to mask initially the fact that the addressee was a camel. Yeah. Um, uh, that, of course, went out the window <laughs> very quickly, but um, that's okay. <laughs> There's a great quote early in the book where you talk about um, what it's like to be a linguistic immigrant. Mm-hmm. A- and you, I'm quoting here, you talk about a character's wistful reminiscences of his boyhood village, a tumble of stone houses split by a river so green he had no word for it in his new tongue and had to say it in the old one, thus trapping it forever as a secret between the two of us. Um, you obviously are extremely accomplished at English. Was English your first language? No, it was not, no. So, so what was it like to... To learn not just to speak in a different language, but to write in a different language. And also, do you ever have those moments where you say, oh, the word, the word I want is just not in English? All the time. And, and weirdly, more as I get older. Mm. Um, possibly because I, my, my maneuverings in English now, I hope, are... are I, I think that as I write and as I develop as a writer, I think one of the things I'm striving for more and more is precision. Um, so... For precision, you're constantly translating back and forth and back and forth, and you just run up against a wall. You're like, that's it. Like we yeah. we brought it down to like the lowest common denominator, yeah. and and it's just not the same thing. Um, so I've I've always written in English. Um, I can write in um, uh, my my native tongue, uh, but is that Bosnian or it's so it was called Serbo-Croatian yeah. uh-huh. um, yeah. back in the day. It is it is now three separate languages. It's right. Serbian, Croatian, and Bosnian. Um, I can write and read in Cyrillic. Uh, it's it's real. It's real slow. It's real slow going. It's it's yeah, like yeah. cat. I, I understand yeah. it because I, I took Russian for a few years as a child, so I like I can I can look at a word in Cyrillic and pronounce it. I mean, I, I probably can't tell you what it means. Sure. But, and but it, when it you, is when very you come intuitive. to the house tonight, I can show you copies of Alice in Wonderland in Serbian, Croatian, and Bosnian. Marvelous. So, yeah, Please cool. do. <laughs> I, I I look forward to that. Um, yeah. So so I I, I think that that the. Um, the experience of, of, of writing in a different language, 
this is this is the thing that I've I've come to to recognize now about my immigrant experience. When you're young, or uh, and when you're a kid and when you're a young adult, you have a lot of confidence about the fact that you can, you know, you can do this and, and you got this and your, uh, your urge to assimilate is so tremendous mm-hmm. that it swamps all your insecurities, I think, or it certainly did, it did for me and it was a product of my youth. As I grow older, even the linguistic immigration aspect becomes difficult because yeah. because to express yourself and to sort of feel nostalgic for these ways of expression uh, starts to starts to bubble up yeah. in a weird way. Yeah. You've talked about Gabriel Garcia Marquez as an influence, mm-hmm. and there's certainly a dose of magical realism in this book. In what ways do you think magical realism is sort of uniquely suited to reveal the human condition? I think it's actually a huge part of so many cultures and, and uh, you know, so many cultures have an oral storytelling tradition that is in it, at its heart magical realist. You yeah. know, it's how we talk about our myths and legends and, and, um, and, and not just the big ones, but also local lore. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that it taps into that tradition really, really viscerally. Um, so that you're lured in by this sense of a world that is recognizable, but really unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when we're talking about the past and when we're talking about, quote, stories worth telling, and I don't mean stories, you know, stories that are, that are worthy of, because every story is worthy of a platform. Sure. I mean stories that a storyteller in a narrative decides to tell another right. participant of, of, of that narrative. Um, it's, it's always so exciting to, to have the, the possibility of having just some random magical thing wander yeah, in yeah. And, and have it go unquestioned, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, um, I, you know, in, because of that influence of magical realism, I was immediately intrigued by the character of Josie because on the one hand, we hear you say that she's born to Chicanery, and mm-hmm. we, we kind of feel like she's a fraud. But then at other times, she seems to be genuinely communing with the dead. And I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you set up that dichotomy of, like, is she a fraud? Is she a clairvoyant? Or, or does it matter? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, well, to me, to some degree, it, it, it never matters um, because because so much of what people believe is is the, then becomes true about them. You know, they, if you live uh, uh, in your beliefs, then they then they become true. Um, I think so much of poor Josie's setup is is how she relates to, to Nora. You know, Nora has a lot of feelings about Josie that are quite negative. Yeah. Um, she she she's the one who really uh, really believes Josie to be a charlatan, and she has no qualms about this, um, except for one crucial moment uh, toward the, the 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 final third of the book, where where she kind of um, questions whether Josie might actually be the real thing and whether the real thing might be possible because Nora's carrying on this ongoing conversation of 17 years with the what she insists is the imagined ghost of her dead daughter. Right. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think um, characters in, in my work somehow are always battling between... Uh, they're always at a crossroads between believing in a world that is purely... Um, rationalist and and believing in a world that has a possibility for some supernatural elements in it yeah and I think yeah. that Josie was uh, was right that was the fulcrum of that yeah there's there's a sentence about Josie that really echoed for me a sentence in my own novel and you write 
whether her powers are real or not, Josie is a true believer. Yeah. Um, and there's a sentence in the Lost Book of the Grail where a character says, maybe it's more important that you believe in God than that he exists. And it was interesting because I was at a book club the other day and somebody like really honed in on that sentence and wanted to talk about mm-hmm. you know, the power of belief and, and, and how, how whether you believe in something and whether or not it's true are really kind of two totally separate things. Yeah. And to me, it seems like that's kind of the case with, with Josie as well. And I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about, about the, the power of belief, like independent of whether the thing believed in is, is real or not. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, I think the, 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 the power of belief, um, regardless of what you believe is, is something that it, it, it's the framework for your whole life, for the way you live your whole life. Um, and uh, it's it's it, it sets you up as a person. It sets up your values. It sets up um, decisions that you're going to make. And and to some degree, you know, like community is part of that, and, and communal belief is part of that too. You know, um, the way we pass legends down and the way we reinforce stories for one another. But um, yeah, it's it's not only independent of whether or not something is uh, of empirical truth. It's also independent of everybody else because yeah. it dictates your own personal life to yeah. such a degree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I just see that in a lot of the characters in this novel that that belief plays, you know, an important part in their um, in the, sort of their self identity. Really, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, another quote I love is when you're first talking about Toby, and you say that he had no great wish to see the beast merely to be believed in the matter of his existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of a little bit about what we were talking about, but but Toby's a child at this point. And do, do you think that that notion uh, gets at sort of a universal childhood feeling of, you know, how, how we relate as children to the things we believe in, the other people around us, just simply wanting to be accepted for who we are I think so absolutely you know because Toby is 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 you know Toby in particular in this novel is is just so awash in the fears of his conviction and and I think that um, there's nothing more isolating than not being taken seriously than not being believed mm-hmm. yeah. right yeah. and 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 it's just a, a, a condition of childhood across across the board you know it's 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 and certainly for our generation for for, for, for my generation and and, and yours these, this notion of you have to earn your way into um, accountability. You know, you have to earn your way into into being someone who is trustworthy. Right, right. Uh, uh, and and you're a long way off, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah, I do think so. But both Toby and Lurie, in, in, as children, in in the early chapters of the book, they see things that other people don't see. Yeah. Um, we Toby's called perceptive. Yeah. By by other characters in the book. Um, do you think children are like that? Do you think they have a wisdom and an insight that sometimes we as adults don't have? I think so. I think that they, they, they but, but they're also, you know, they're also, I, I think that on the one hand, they, they sometimes do. Um, and, and I think that um, the lack of ability, the lack of belief in, in, in the things that children feel and the things that children sometimes see, I think, um, causes them to question themselves, right? It's this hammering away of, 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 um, identity to some degree. Uh, however, at the same time, you know, uh, the brain isn't developed and, and, and kids are just, you know, kids make things up all, <laughs> all the time. Yeah, yeah. But it, it amazes me 
so I've had I've had a couple of experiences lately. One was talking to Dave Cullen yesterday about mm-hmm. his experience with the the kids at Parkland High School. Now these are these are teenagers, but still, like they were they were running a, a, a political movement with the kind of savvy and a set of rules that most adult politicians should learn from. Absolutely. You know? uh, I also spent a lot of time hanging out with a three year old friend of ours that we look after one day a week, and you know he'll be silly and talk about stuff, and then every now and then he'll say something and he'll just like. I want that printed on a t-shirt, yeah. you know, like that is Bullseye. so wise, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's, you know, as you say, it's, it's, um, it's a time in life when you, you desperately want to be listened to and, and deserve to be listened to. And maybe we don't listen enough. I yeah, know. I agree. Absolutely. Um, and I, and I think that, that, that actually those things, those things go hand in hand to some degree because, um, the idea is that, by passing, by by undergoing certain rites of passage, you will your vision will be transformed, and uh, it will attain uniformity with everyone else. And mm-hmm. only then can I trust what you say. Right, right. As opposed to uh, uh, you know, and and that's what we what we say when when you know when when people want to tear down the Parkland students and they want to tear down young people who who have conviction of any kind. They say, well, you haven't you know, just wait till life you know hammers you around a right, bit. Right, right. And then maybe you'll have the right to say, you know, then let's see how, how convinced you are, you know. And, 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 and the truth of it is, is uh, it's insidious in every way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, sort of on the opposite side of the scales from belief, which we've been talking about, I would say is perception. And Josie says about perception, <laughs> another, it's another great quote. I couldn't stop writing down quotes from this novel. <laughs> um, Josie says, what we see in our hearts is often far truer than what we see with our eyes. <laughs> Um, can you talk about how that sentence and then just the idea of perception in general permeates the novel? It's, um, I think that, that, that well, that's a crucial moment. In, it, it comes early on in the, in the yeah, novel and yeah. it enrages Nora. I mean, like, <laughs> like every time Josie says something, that that you know uh, the the line that follows this immediately is is you know having wafted this profundity, um, uh, you know Josie took her leave and yeah, and, yeah. and and Nora Nora's just but but I I think that Nora is often struggling. Um, the, uh, perception plays a huge role in the novel. It didn't. I, I didn't plan it that way, but but sight and vision and and being able to in, correctly interpret the things that you perceive is mm-hmm. is is really really huge. And and particularly for Nora. Yeah. Um, and so I think that it was sort of fitting when I first wrote it. I, I wrote it as a funny moment, but it was it was it ended up in, in this way that often happens, right? When you get to the end of a draft and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that aligned so nicely. Yeah. yeah. Um, it ended up being uh, really indicative of how Nora was going to go forward through the narrative because she is receiving information all the time that for various reasons of personality she determinedly misinterprets. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the same is true to a lesser degree of, of, of Lurie as well. Um, but, but yeah, a, a, lot about, a lot of this book is about um, misinterpreted information. Yeah. So let's talk about Arizona for a few minutes. So your your first novel was set in sort of an unnamed Balkan state, which makes perfect sense because you you grew up, as you said, in the in what was then called Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you're writing about the Arizona Territory in the yeah. 19th century, <laughs> which I'm guessing is a little bit less connected to your personal experience. What, why did you choose Arizona? Um, so the, the the original history was set in Arizona. The the, mm-hmm. the red ghost is is a, is, a, is an Arizonan legend, um, and I, I wanted to to stay true to, to that. Um, and I and, and I 
I had started spending a tremendous amount of time in the American South and Mountain West um, mm-hmm. over the last few years and just felt so profoundly called home to it as uh, as place, yeah. um, which which is rare for me. For, for me, it's usually, oh, home is people, you know, home is the smell of my mother's cooking right. and, and the voice of my brother, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, this this was a, a different feeling and it's so connected to the way that we mythologize and romanticize the West. This yeah. notion of I have arrived, this was waiting for me with nobody on it yeah. this whole time, yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, uh, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a profound, really deep feeling, but also has these ominous overtones of, of sort of individualism that, that, you know, crack, that break down when you start to dig a little bit. And, um, it, it, it was different to my experience growing up, but I, I like so many writers, you know, write to, to live other yeah. lives. Yeah. Um, and, and it was such a great, great thing to be able to, to imagine these characters in this particular. Well, and I think one of the, yeah, one of the things that we love to write about in terms of, in terms of place is those places where we have an emotional connection. Yeah. Um, and, and a place where, frankly, you want to spend the amount of time that it takes to write a novel. Yeah, absolutely. You know? um, you're not going to, you're not going to want to spend 300 pages in some place that you don't feel any, any passion about. That's so true. Um, you, you draw the landscape and, and the flora you know, and you don't think of the desert as having a lot of flora, but you draw it in this exquisite detail. And you said you you spent time there, but was, did you? Was there also sort of research that went on? And and I realize that some of that landscape hasn't changed since the eighteen nineties, but some of it must have. How, how do you sort of research what was flora like? You know, a hundred and. 20 years ago or sure um, so one of the great advantages for that kind of research uh, was that uh, the camel corps was overseen by a man named Edward Fitzgerald Beale he was a war hero um, and he uh, he was tasked with bringing the camels west mm-hmm. uh, from what was then Fort Defiance in New Mexico to the shores of the Colorado River and, and, and beyond uh, to California. Uh, he did this along a road that already existed, which had existed for hundreds of years, of yeah. course. But it was it was a um, it was it was a staking of the road. Yeah. That road is now Route 66. Oh gosh. Um, and uh, so that was the, that was the the way through the the, the particular heart of the country there. Um, and because he was a military man, and the whole objective of the project was to get funding for more camels to come over, um, he kept a really, really detailed diary. Oh. And he kept a, a, his his detailing. Uh, he focused heavily on 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 flora because he was. St- that the camels would eat just about anything. Mm. Um, and he found this to be useful because he, he too thought that, you know, this is a pretty arid landscape. What are we going to feed these things? Yeah. And the yeah. answer was just whatever they see, you know, yeah. grease wood, that's fine. Um, and they were, you know, they were there munching on creosote and he was astonished, you know, and, <laughs> and um, so he, he detailed that. And he also detailed, to answer the second part of your question, uh, he detailed the longitude and latitude of every camp between Fort Defiance and the Colorado. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went, longitude and latitudes don't change, even yeah, if landscape yeah. does. And I went along all the camps. Oh, wow. Um, and so some of them have changed quite a bit. The first two are, respectively, a uh, huge modernist church mm-hmm. in downtown Albuquerque. <laughs> and the other is the Albuquerque Greyhound Station. Some of them are just, you know, flat plains that look exactly the way they did 
160 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so it was it was it was pretty it was and some of them are completely unreachable because you know I didn't have a camel and nor did right. I have a four wheel drive. Right. Um, yeah. um, but. Uh, it was just, it was, it was wonderful to get to do that. It that's, really was. That's fantastic yeah. that, he, that he left that kind of detail. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about what life, what daily life was like for settlers in Arizona at that time. I mean, Nora is, is one of these. They, I, I love this fact that they, you know, they live in a house that we get this sense was basically the previous family in that house just said, you know, we give up. This is too hard. Um, what, what was that? What, the, what was that life like and what were the hardships like? Oh, gosh, the hardships were innumerable. I think particularly if you were a woman. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, I think, um, you know, they're in, in the book, they're, they're coping with um, tremendous drought and, of course, the history of the Southwest, and, and in particular, but the West in general, is all about water, right? Access to water, the availability of water, the absence of water, um, and, and the finding of it. And um, so I wanted to write a character who, um, Luria I think is fascinated by the landscape. Nora is fed up. She's been there for 20 years, yep. you know, waiting on these rains uh, every year, hoping they come, they come a hundred miles away and then they, they start the creeks up or they don't. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a uniquely human Thing to persist so doggedly in places that clearly want to kill you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so the hardships, uh, you know, it's just the, I, I think one of the things that struck me most, um, and I think that comes across in the book, was the psychological hardship of not knowing things. Mm-hmm. Um, a loved one, not at this particular moment, and I think that a lot of the characters are grappling with the uh, generalized psychological change from one state to the other, but a loved one could leave on a journey and be dead by that night, and you wouldn't know to miss them for like three months. And so living in this state of of endless, endless possibility for tragedy, to which people become inured, yeah. whatever people live in it across the eras of, of humanity, you know. Uh, 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 but I think it must have been quite, quite wearying. Um, yeah, yeah. And then I love the fact that her husband is has what seems to be kind of an ordinary job. He's a newspaper man. He's a newspaper man. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, yeah. She, she's out here in this in this incredibly harsh environment, and you think, and he's just like. He's who is he? Bob Woodward. He's just in there with the. T- I mean, I realize, of course, this, it's earlier, but in our mind, it's like that doesn't seem like a fighting against the um, environment kind of a job, right? You know, it just seems like he's got his little hat on and his his printing press and, and clacking away. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, actually, rolling away, I guess. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, he's he's a newspaper man, um, and he has been afforded, as many men were at the time. Uh, the opportunity to reinvent himself a number of times, mm-hmm. and this is what he's landed on. Um, and uh, the newspaper has been growing in tandem with this town where they live, Amargo, and it's all imperiled now by the fact, by by the combined facts of this drought and the fact that the neighboring town is challenging them for the county seat, which yeah. which throughout American history has been the kind of thing where it's like either the road comes or someone says, actually, we're going to move it over here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this kills towns, right? Yeah. Um, and still does. And um, so... Uh, he is, you know, he's he's the man in charge of a dying newspaper, the pillar of a dying town. Yeah. 
and um, she's fed up with that too. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked. We've talked about character some and about landscape some, and there's a moment for me that really shows how you are able as a writer to use landscape to reveal character. And that's when you talk about how the three sons, Rob, Dolan, and Toby, look at the rocks of the Arizona desert, oh, yeah. and they each see something completely different. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about that moment and how you use just that view of the stones to reveal these three very different characters? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so Nora has three sons, Rob, Dolan, and, and little Toby, and uh, she's, she's on her way to town and she stops in this sort of barren place that makes her very nervous because it's, it's notoriously known as like a haven of bad men and, and like there's a lot of weird rock formations where people have been hiding and, yeah. and she complains about the fact that um, sometimes, uh, you know, dudes from, from the East Coast will come and, and, and stand there and, and want to know all about the, the, the roughnecks that, hide, hide, that have hidden there historically. And her boys... Um, she remembers it sort of fondly because each of her boys has had this different reaction. Her son, her eldest son, Rob, um, always saw these manifestations of like positive, fantastical things that, that, that were around him, right? Like buffalo or, or, or trains, um, things that like called him into the world. And her middle son, Dolan, who's kind of a spoil sport, um, <laughs> uh, saw them just, you know, as rock formations that were pretty cool but just rocks yeah. and then Toby sees them as just this haunted haunted place yeah. um, and I think a lot of uh, the a lot of this book um, by by the very nature of the period this charged history that we're finally beginning to sort of un- unpack in, 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 in more honest ways um Landscape means different things to, to everybody. Yeah. Um, it affects different people differently. People have a different attachment and legacy uh, uh, with respect to it. And I, I really, really wanted to, to highlight that all the time in this, in this book. Um, and it started actually with that scene yeah. where, where, her, where she reflects on, on, on her boy's interaction uh, when, uh, with this very, very small piece of the landscape yeah. um, that is in, otherwise insignificant. Do you think? What, do you think the fact that it's such a dramatic landscape that you're that you're dealing with allowed you these opportunities to kind of tease out those moments? Um, Absolutely. I mean, I guess every landscape is dramatic in its own way. But when I think of, especially the way you describe it, it it's it's both alien to me as a resident of Winston Salem, and and also you know sort of feels charged with drama in a way. For sure, absolutely. But it's also super, super recognizable. Because yeah, yeah. because even if you even if you haven't ever set foot in the Southwest, the the power of that mythology and and, yeah. and the images that have come down to us from from the cowboy westerns of old, you know, and of new, um, are so, so pervasive. Mm-hmm. Um, and landscape in those in those narratives is always treated as a, as a place of high drama, you yeah, know? That's true. Um, yeah. and so it's already like, it comes, I think that when, when you're a writer, you're always trying to, to some degree, make the reader bring their own luggage, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and so in, when writing, when, when sort of playing around with Western tropes, um, it, you can rely on the reader to bring a very particular set of suitcases and yeah. those suitcases yeah. will contain landscape in them for sure. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. Um, 
We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us a little insight into you, into your life, into your writing process. So if you're ready, I'm we ready. will begin our speed round. I'm ready. What word do you love to work into your writing? Exsanguinate. Oh, nice. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Oh, God. Vulnerable. Hmm. Where's your favorite place to write? At my desk in New York. Where could you never write? At any public space in New York. <laughs> <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Um, the, uh, the, the rule of negatives, the not, the, the, see, I don't even know what it's called. Um, I'm an immigrant. Um, uh, the, the, the one about not breaking up negatives. Okay. Um, <laughs> what's the first book you remember reading? A Jungle Book. And I'm curious, what language did you read it in? In, in, in Serbian Croatian. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are you reading now? Uh, I am reading The Friend by Sigrid Inez. Mm-hmm. What book would you like to have written? The Master of Margarita. <laughs> what sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? Just space sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Well, I don't ever need to read another book again. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Taya Obret, whose novel Inland is available wherever books are sold, and you can get signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Taya, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Hugo Award winner Becky Chambers about her brilliant sci-fi novella, To Be Taught If Fortunate. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion.